All right, thanks again, Laura. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. If you're, if you're visiting today for the first time, we are especially glad you're here. Thanks for joining us for one of our gatherings. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, as you uh, gathered by now, and a few weeks in, we uh, are going to be in this series for about another year or so. Uh, we're in chapter two of a 28-chapter book, so, so here we go. A very significant passage today, a really fun one in a lot of ways, uh, Acts, but before we get there, if you're brand new to Acts, we're calling our series The Church is Born because it's one of the main themes in the book. There's a ton, though, going on in the book, but uh, in terms of like history and kind of theology, too, of course, but historically and narratively, this is where we, we learn and really read um, most particularly about the birth of God's, of Christ's church, his bride, Christians who gather together and who are saved and are kind of collectively gathered into these different groups in different cities around the ancient world and then um, implied beyond that as well. And so we're a part of the story. We'll talk about this as we go throughout the series too, but we're a part of the book of Acts. We're just kind of after Acts. And so it's, it's world history, it's, uh, it's kind of ancient history, and yet it's theology at the same time. And it's uh, real people, real stories, real cities, real sufferings, real martyrdoms, real persecutions, and a real God in Christ who is uh, the same God in Christ in our city as well. And so we're, we're drawing ties uh, there. I already have, and we will as the series goes on. But Acts, though, is the fifth book of the New Testament, the last of these narrative genre books that we have in the Bible, actually. So there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. Right after the New Testament, we have four gospel accounts, which uh, tell the story of the, the birth in two of the four cases, but the birth, life, ba- baptism, life and ministry, and especially death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have Acts, which is kind of a part two to the Gospel of Luke. So Luke wrote both of these books. This is a, a sequel to Luke, and he writes the same audience. Uh, we've talked about that already in, in this series, but... Uh, so we know he wrote it for lots of reasons, actually, but uh, same audience uh, by name in, in chapter 1. But Acts is the story of the acts of Jesus, essentially. This is why we call the book Acts. It's the acts of Christ, the acts of Jesus, the, the continued acts of Jesus post his resurrection and ascension to heaven. And then includes thematically, we talked about this, but the birth of his church and the sending of the Holy Spirit to, this is a key word from last week, fill people or fill empty vessels like us. It's implied we're, we're empty uh, vessels that, that need God's Spirit to live, so we're kind of dead, empty vessels like us, and the Spirit will help the gospel spread all the way to Rome. That will, will get there, uh, but this kind of center of political and cultural life in the ancient world. So, And like all biblical narrative, we're learning history and theology as we go. And so today... We're going to look at the first Christian sermon ever from Acts 2, 14 to 41. Uh, Laura already read it. I'll come back and read some of the key sections. But if you want to turn your Bibles for context to Acts 2 or phone apps, please do that. But a lot of this will be on screen here as we go. But the first Christian sermon ever, which is a really cool uh, spot to be uh, in narrative and to learn from. Yes, the prophets preached in the Old Testament in a way. uh, And Jesus definitely preached about the kingdom of God. But those were all forward-looking in nature. Even Jesus' sermons and preaching was was looking ahead to his death and resurrection. So this is the first Christian-era New Testament sermon on this side of the cross and empty tomb, which is pretty cool. And so we learn a lot from that. But like many firsts in the New Testament, like we said about Pentecost last week, though this is not necessarily paradigmatic of what we'd expect preaching to all the time look like, like in terms of length or flow or precise theme or, or something like that, it still is kind of paradigmatic. So it's sort of like, you know, is this what sermons should always look like? Well, he's not saying that. You know, it's not the point. He's just preaching. And so, but with that said, it is still kind of paradigmatic, and it tells us truths about the centrality of the gospel and how to handle the Old Testament as it predicts Christ and uh, how to talk about um, 
uh, the gospel on a conversion kind of like an evangelistic call kind of level and all these great things. So, and, it, and all along, it protects us from versions of Christianity that are contrary to it as well. So we will be reminded and taught how to handle the Bible, how to teach, evangelize. That's not going to be the main focus today, though. What I want to do is just talk about Peter's sermon. Just preach this passage as though it's not supposed to be a paradigm or example, but more like, what is he saying here? And so if that's kind of unclear, we'll uh, clarify as we go. But the big question is, what does Peter do with this sermon? So what are the contents of it? So or rather, what does the Holy Spirit do here? How does he, how does he speak through Peter? And remember last week we saw this, when the Holy Spirit comes on people in Acts and biblically, they start speaking almost without exception in the Bible. That is a huge ministry of the Spirit is to enable people to speak truth, to call out things that are lies, to speak about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised. We can't do that without the Spirit. If you've ever done that yourself, Christians in the room, if you've ever talked about Jesus on a truth-filled level, that is the Holy Spirit in you doing that. That is not you. It's kind of cool, very mystical, but be encouraged by that. It should be a sign that the Holy Spirit is in me. He's enabling me to, even if it's very casual, very casual, or it could be formal, or anywhere in between. That is the Holy Spirit doing that. It's impossible to preach the gospel without the help of the Spirit. And we're seeing that implied, but I think more than implied here. But I'll just say implied in, in Acts 2. All right, so the question, what does Peter do with this sermon? I think two big things, then it concludes. And so we'll start with this first piece. Um, he's justifying the outpouring of the Spirit. So remember last week, Tongues of fire, when the Holy Spirit came on these apostles, they sort of landed on the heads of these apostles. They started to speak in other languages they didn't know. And Jews from around the ancient world who had native tongues because they had been dispersed and grew up in different parts of the ancient world were gathered there. Though they were Jewish, they had other native languages. They were hearing the apostles speak in those tongues or in those languages. So it'd be like if, if Marty was speaking something and then uh, several of us heard in our own like native tongues the same thing, but in different languages. Does that make sense? So it's kind of weird, but if you've never heard of this before, it's sort of like this, he's speaking one language, I mean technically, but the Spirit's allowing these different languages to be heard to kind of overcome language barriers and to demonstrate that separation between people was being eradicated. Lots more on that. We talked about that last week. It's on our website if you want to catch up, but a lot really cool stuff. But there are people responding differently, as maybe you might expect. Some are saying, this is weird and trippy, and I, I think it's an act of God because how does this happen? And so, but I don't know what it means. So what does it mean? That's one response. The other response is, they're drunk. <laughs> I know, we can explain this really easily. They're, they're drunk. And so, um, to read verses, let's catch you up then. Verse 14, again, Peter's standing there. He's just lifting up his voice and saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only 9 a.m., the third hour of the day. But this is what... Joel said. So we'll get to that uh, verse 16 here in a second. But as we said last week, a couple of quick asides about what's happening here with response. It's interesting, really interesting actually, because we see this in our culture too and in our own hearts. Some are quick to rationalize the work of the Spirit. So those that are saying that they're just drunk, rationalizing the work of the Spirit. So saying things like, oh, that's, that's easy to explain away, the whole language thing. They're just drunk. So it doesn't sound very rational to say, you know, drunkenness makes you speak a language you don't know, like fluent French, if you didn't know that. Like, no, I don't think that's what happens, but that they're thinking, and this is a logical thing to say. You know, um, this must be what's happening. They're just drunk. Um, but it's, it's sort of like, and I think I said this last week too, but it'd be like um, widening out, thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, um, a skeptic saying, 
There must be some explanation to this, scientific or otherwise, to explain the fact that Christians think Jesus rose from the dead. And so we rationally approach it. Not that rationalism is bad all the time. It's just trying to rationalize it away, though. Uh, but not all things are so easily rationalized. That's the problem. You know, Christianity is a, a moving of the Spirit of God in the world to raise Jesus from the dead. And Christianity is uh, also a moving of that same Spirit to draw people. Uh, it's the belief that God is drawing people to believe in Him. And, so, and to fill them with His very own presence. And so it's easy to just dismiss it without thinking about it. But there are many things that are true in the world that we can't comprehend, right? Many mysteries we haven't entirely solved with human reason, but are still true regardless. And so these people, this is kind of the scary thing, is these people who are saying they're just drunk, they think they have the answer, right? Like, I think I figured this out. They're just drunk. And yet, at the same time, they're staring at this miraculous work of God. Isn't that crazy? They're staring at a work of God, and they're rationalizing it away, totally missing it. So it's scary that that can happen and scary that it does happen every day in the world around us. It happened in probably all, not happened in my heart before I was a Christian, all of our hearts until it's not, right? Until God, I think it's implied here, but the Spirit needs to help us overcome that. It's, uh, we're still in the space of saying they're just drunk. Like we say in front of the empty tomb maybe and say, well, someone just stole the body. Easy, check, Christianity's false. Like try to rationalize it away. It's kind of the same thing as just kind of crediting drunkenness to this work of the Spirit without thinking about it. The rationality here blinds them to reality. Rationality can blind us to reality if we're, if we're not careful. So, All right, so that happens, but then, then Peter stands up and says, hey guys, let me start my sermon. This is my introduction. He says, it's only 9 a.m., we're not drunk. You know, and the crowd's already there. They're gathered because of the craziness of the whole tongues thing, but we're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m., which is kind of interesting, right, that he doesn't say, Christians don't drink. That's not the first thing he says, you know, is you've got it wrong. It's almost like he's saying the time for alcohol is later tonight. The parties begin later. Um, it's only nine now, though, so that's, that's later this evening. Because the point of Christianity is not abstinence from alcohol, nor is it drinking. I mean, it's not about food and drink. I think Romans 14.20, I think it is, says that, or somewhere around there, Romans 14-something. The, the point of the kingdom is not food and drink. It's about righteousness in the Holy Spirit. It's about being saved from our sins. It's about Jesus. And so don't get proud of yourself for, for being so ascetic and not drinking alcohol. And if you drink alcohol, don't boast of your freedom, like Paul would say elsewhere, or don't worship alcohol and get drunk on it, you know, something like that. Just take this middle road of saying it's not about either one of those. So drink or not drink to the glory of God. Or like Peter's saying here, hey, we'll bring it out later, but now's, now's time to preach the gospel. So... All right, but then he does get to the point. So, and he defends this work of the Spirit right from the Old Testament prophet Joel. So let's read that again here to, to, just to catch you up. In these last days, it's, you know, this is Joel who speaks uh, 500 years or so before Christ. So hundreds of years prior, looking ahead to events that happened around Jesus' death and resurrection and around this. So P Peter's basically saying what Joel spoke is happening right now, and it happened 50 days prior when Jesus died on that cross and rose again. All right, but Joel says last days because he's still looking to the future. So Peter says, quoting Joel 2, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and moon to blood 
before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So a few really important things from this section from Joel's prophecy that Peter remembers and Spirit helps him remember this and he quotes it. Is it memorized? Or the Spirit helps him just to, to recall this. But he's saying, uh, first of all, in the first verse, that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people or all kinds of people. We'll talk about that piece in a minute, but on all kinds of people. My Spirit will be poured on all flesh. It's a really cool reality, mystical, that's easy to look over, but I think one of the best demonstrations we have, maybe, um, I think narratively, maybe anywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament at least, but um, in Acts here, of the answer to the question of why God created any of us at all, or why God created any of this. And the answer being to share himself with us, to pour his spirit out on us. This is why God made us in the first place. We're kind of seeing the end to which God made all things. So he might share his very being with us and we might be with him where he is. Remember, this is why the Trinity, so God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so one God who exists eternally in three persons, this basic Christian, mystical, impossible to understand fully with logic, but, but clearly biblical and important doctrine. This is why the Trinity is such good news. There's good news to it. We actually see the Trinity in this passage. You guys catch that in Joel 2? So in verse 17, God, the Father, is mentioned. The Spirit is all over. It's the Holy Spirit. In the last verse, the Lord is mentioned, and the Lord is Jesus. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this passage itself. It's kind of cool. But the Trinity, this is why the Trinity is such good news, and that is God already had a relationship with his triune self before anything was created. This is the idea. So God had a friendship, a relationship, a loving relationship with the other persons of that Trinity before anything else was created. And so he couldn't have made us to get something from us. There's no utilitarian reason God made us, as if he was bored or lonely. He didn't have loneliness. He already had friendship. He already had love. He didn't need anything, right? We said later in Acts, how Stephen preaches that in Acts 7. He doesn't need anything. There's nothing we can give him. He's totally self-sufficient. So why did he make us? It must be that he wants to share himself with us so that we might have his spirit. We might prophesy and dream and vision. In other words, share his thoughts, hear from him, know him, talk to him, pray to him. All of that was severed in the beginning due to our sin, but he came back to get that back through Jesus' shed blood. And so this is the other side of the gospel. It's part of the gospel, kind of the other side. The benefits that we get now is that we have the Holy Spirit of God. God is the very God who made the universe, guys, has shared his very being with you. See how like real and mystical, real time that is? That's true right now in the spirit room if you're a Christian. He shared himself with you. That, that's like, man, trippy, right? But awesome that there's no more barriers between you and God. Nowhere else to go. No, what, what else is there to do if he shared his spirit with you? There's no more barriers because that blood's been spilled, Christ's blood, that his spirit now dwells in you and you are with him. Wherever you are, especially with other Christians, that is where God says, that is my temple, that's where I dwell now, is uh, in that type of context. All right? So that's the first piece. The second related is that he says in verse 17, all flesh. So then he says down in verse, is it 18 there? Um, Even on my male servants and my female servants. So he describes different kinds of people here. 
in the middle, but all flesh, and he describes uh, different kinds of people. Even on my male servants and female servants will I pour out my spirit, which is another way of saying access for all has been granted. No more partiality, which is to say the lowest now can be saved. The lowest on the social totem pole has access just like the ones on top. Whatever your class, whatever your gender, whatever your level of intelligence. So that is to say then, this is a, a more clear argument like in places like 1 Corinthians 1, elsewhere in the letters of the New Testament where they kind of systematize this a bit more. This is still a narrative, but this is also to say it can't be then by works or by intelligence or class or status that we're saved, but by grace. If he were just to pour out his spirit on kings and professors or even old people, I like that he says young people here because if we're just about old people, we could think that, oh, so you have to live a while and do a lot of good things and figure things out theologically and be pretty learned. Then you get the spirit. But he says, no, young people who know nothing. Sorry, young people in the room, but who know nothing are receiving the spirit simply because they call on the Lord. See how it must be by grace? Otherwise, this makes no sense. If it's, if it's at all by works, 1% by works, this prophecy prophesied 500 years before Jesus makes no sense. It contradicts the idea of grace if this isn't true. If salvation's partial, it's by works. If it's impartial, it's by grace. And so then we also extrapolate from this, and I'm kind of getting out already, but if it were just on kings, professors, old people, smart people, high class, all that stuff, it also leads us then to the idea of, of good people. If we're just poured out on good people, we'd have to make these kind of conclusions. And I, I like the idea of even, you know, um, Joel is kind of saying here, Peter's saying, look out in the world and see when this happens. Like, look in churches and see, look, people are saved who are really smart and who are really simple, who don't know that much. Old and young, men and women, high, tons of money, hardly any money, rich, poor, there's no partiality. See grace play out out here, objective to you. But I think the even phrase should also be kind of flipped like a mirror in our face where we say, oh, even I'm saved. Even me. Like, that's like, that's a miracle of miracles. I, I don't, this is an injustice that I'm saved. This isn't fair. This is a great, we have to be careful with our idea of justice because uh, if we're too passionate about justice, then you shouldn't be saved. You know, it's like only, we only are saved because of Jesus' blood. We don't deserve it. And so justice is good, but it's unfair and unjust, actually, that, that, we're, that we're saved. The justice thing comes in when Christ is punished in our place, but that's another, another thing. We'll come back to that. So even us, even Hiawatha Church, even people in this city are, have, been, have been saved. Praise be to God. All right, and then the last piece, in uh, the last days, this is uh, another, another thing here, an important thing not to miss. The last days here, Peter's saying, are a present reality. Okay, this is a chronological thing. Theologically, it's really important, though. Joel saying, looking ahead in the future, saying the last days are coming. Peter saying the last days are here now. You see that? What Joel prophesied is happening now, which means the last days must already be here. In other words, the last days for us are not a future reality. They're present. Yes, there are things that are coming we're waiting for, like Jesus' return and all of that, that are going to change things for sure. Praise God. But the last days have been going on for 2,000 years. So, the fire, the blood, the smoke, etc., those are all symbolic and apocalyptic images of judgment from the prophets, Joel being one of them, that points us ahead to Jesus and are therefore now present realities. 
Luke 23 helps us here, one of the many examples, but Luke 23, so Luke's first volume, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, remember, so Luke's first volume, it says that Jesus shed his blood on the cross while the sun's light failed. So it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So for three hours, the sun went out. The sun stopped shining. Then Jesus breathed his last. And so what we have here, this, this shows us three things together, a few things together among others. We have blood, darkness, and the last day, and the day of the Lord, kind of all being lumped, all these things are lumping together at the cross. This is where all those prophetic ideas came together. The day of the Lord's happening there, this day of salvation and judgment. Judgment's happening, blood's being poured out, the sun's going out. There's other symbolic things happening here too with the moon, and time's going to fail me for that, but there's other prophetic, symbolic, apocalyptic images that associate with judgment. Jesus is being, in the prophets, Jesus is being judged. His blood's being spilt, the sun's going out, judged in our place as a substitute. So what Peter's saying, you know, lots more to say about that, but what Peter's saying essentially then is all this is present. This is happening now. Listen up, you guys. Remember what Joel said? This is happening now. This is the day of the Lord. These are the days fulfilled by, that are the Spirit's being poured out. These are the days that are being fulfilled by Christ. He experienced darkness for us. He shed his blood for us. He ushered in the end of what God was always intending salvation-wise for us. And so the big implication here then, there's a lot, lots to say, but is that the end is here now. And, and I'm, so try to like drill this into your own heart like, and think about present-day implication. The end is here now for us. So instead of getting, like when you think about the future, getting ready for the end as if it were just a future reality, what this is saying is judgment is already beginning. It's already begun with Christ, and it's kind of like cycling out into the world. And, and Jesus is helpful here. Actually, John writes this, but about Christ. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. This is huge. Condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, this is last days type argumentation here. If judgment was just about the end, for just a future reality, this makes no sense. But because there's no other thing God's going to send in the world, there's no other plan, there's no Jesus 2.0, there's no like other thing for him to do, other thing for him to say or do or, or bring into the world, because he's the goal of everything that God was doing up into history up until that point, this is it. So judgment begins. And the way Christians think is our judgment's been poured out on Jesus. And so we fear no more judgment because there's no more condemnation. We believed in Christ. Jesus was condemned and judged and the sun went out when he was on the cross fulfilling the prophecies. He was judged for us. And so judgment's poured out on him. But to those who don't believe in Jesus, judgment's still on them. This is the idea. Not that they don't have time to change their mind, repent, and turn. It's not fatalistic. It's just saying that presently, with their choice to reject, judgment's already coming on them. And so we are in the last, these last 2,000 years have been, according, according to the Bible, according to Peter, the last days. They are not just future. Don't, if you think about just future, the present won't mean as much to you. You'll, it's easier to become lazy and not care. Oh, I'll just believe in Jesus whenever I see that moon turn to blood, you know, and there's, oh, there's that blood eclipse again. Well, I don't know. You know, it's probably just a coincidence, and we rationalize it, and, you know, that kind of weird stuff. 
I better go back to my Left Behind books and figure it out or something. But it's just there's no, there's no impetus to, to cast ourselves on Jesus. There, there's less of it. There's less of it. But if judgments, last days are now, there, there's, there's all the more. So, all right, that's the first thing. Second thing is, he, so he justifies the all point of the Spirit. Second thing is, he drills deep into the death and resurrection of Jesus by way of the Psalms. So, so first what he does is, is he calls back these Jews 50 days prior to this event when they called for Jesus' crucifixion. So in verse 23 it says, This Jesus d- delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. So then it's interesting here in this verse, he does two seemingly contradictory things here, but they complement. He says, Jesus was delivered up or crucified by the Jews, but by the hands of lawless men being the Romans because they had to do the, they had to execute the crucifixion and so forth. So by the hands of the Romans, the lawless men, and the Jews as well, Jesus was sentenced unjustly. So Peter's saying, you did this. But then he says, and it was a definite plan of God and that, that, that this should happen. By his foreknowledge, but it wasn't just like he knew it was going to come. He definitely planned it. You guys see that? So basically it's a question, if we ask the question, whose fault was it that Christ died? It's kind of like, well, how much time he got? Because that's really complicated, right? These people did it. It was their fault. It was their choice to crucify him. And yet it was through their bad choices, the definite plan of God, that his son would die because that's the reason he came was to die in the place of sinners so that he might rise. So it's important theologically on two levels. One, this is a picture of what sin is. Rejecting, mocking, or choosing against God. The Bible calls us going our own way. It's actually worse than murder and adultery because it's where those things originate from. Those things are downstream from seeking independence from God and self-reliance and being arrogant, disposing of him, forsaking him, hating him. That's all upstream. That's where it originates. Downstream from those things are things like murder and adultery and fill-in-the-blank, whatever the, these really bad, harmful, physically, physically harmful things are. And so that's what sin is. And this is like kind of the ultimate, in a way, and I said this first service too, but this is kind of going back a, a few chapters, but whenever Jesus is put on trial, remember this, and Pilate's kind of like, oh, he's innocent, and I don't know what to do, and oh, I know, one day a year, I, I give you a chance to kind of let this criminal go that, that's, that's in jail. And he brings out this criminal Barabbas. Remember this story? Those of you who have read this before? And he puts him saying, well, they're going to choose the criminal, not Jesus. That's hard. There's no evidence against him. They're going to choose to put this, they're going to choose Jesus to go free and put this guy back in and, and, and all that. So he washes his hands of it and kind of says, all right, this is it. But who do they choose? They, they choose Barabbas, right, to be set free and, and Jesus goes back in. So... Anyway, it's just this like cool picture of how this is humanity's kind of last chance to choose God and they choose wickedness. They actually choose against the Son of God in the flesh and choose wickedness. That's what we've all done. And here we're seeing this play out. Uh, here, talked about in Acts 2, but back at the end of Luke, we're seeing this play out where people, this is the essence of sin. We forsake, we hate, we reject, we dispose, and we rely on self. That's the essence of sin, independence. All right, and then two then, we also see the flip side of this is that um, Jesus' death was, was not an accident but a divine plan. So he's not an accidental martyr. It was not peripheral to what he came to do, but and it wasn't just foreknown by God. It was definitely planned. 
that this, this would happen. So the way Peter writes this then, it's interesting, he's basically saying our rejection of God is the thing that God used to save us from rejecting him. Or another way to say this is, Jesus' death was brought on by the very thing that his death was meant to destroy. Like, what? You know, it's genius, but it's crazy, you know? Jesus' death was brought on by the very thing that God sent him into the world to die for. And so when we look at the cross, we're simultaneously seeing two things. We're seeing how bad our sin is, and we're also seeing in a visual of what sin is, and we're also seeing how big God's love is for us at the same time. Looking at the cross is the center of all theology. Do you want to know what it means that Jesus fulfilled the prophets? Look at the cross. What does it mean that God is love? Look at the cross. When you're talking about the doctrine of sin, look at the cross. Doctrine of the atonement, look at the cross. Doctrine of eschatology or the last days, look at the cross. That's where it started. It's everything. That's a climax of everything. Not there's not more to say, just that is where it all comes to a head. Where and when and how he died. That is where he fulfills all scripture and brings to a head all the characteristics of God, his wrath and judgment, but also his love and mercy and patience and grace. All right, then he quickly adds here in 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Love that verse. Then he argues after this, then he kind of spins off on that and argues for the resurrection by quoting two Psalms of David, Psalm 116 and Psalm 110. And it's interesting how he uses it. So let's just read this again really quick here, but arguments for the resurrection from the Psalms. He says, 27, quoting Psalm 116, David's words, written 1,000 B.C. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see decay like bodily decay or corruption. So down to 29, then Peter basically spins off on this and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all eyewitnesses. Then with Psalm 110, he says, David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so essentially what Peter is doing here, just to summarize this, is Peter is saying, David who wrote this a thousand years before Christ couldn't be talking about himself. He's still dead. His tomb's down the street. We, can, we all walk by it every day. So he's still in the ground. He couldn't have been talking about himself. Oh, and by the way, who is this other Lord in Psalm 110? The Lord God said to the Lord above me, the king. Like, who's above the king except God? Why are they these two lords? And so it's referring to Jesus. That's the whole thing. It must be referring to Christ. There's a second Lord in Psalm 110. And then Psalm 16, he's speaking beyond himself. He's talking about, as he says here, he sees beyond and kind of through the promise that God gave him of a descendant of his that would sit forever on his throne. And it's interesting, Peter says that's the resurrection. He's using Psalm 116 to talk about and predict and look back and see how it's predicted, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. So we killed him, 
but God used that very act of treason to be the means by which he saved us from it. It's, it's another uh, look at this definite plan and foreknowledge. A thousand years before Christ, these psalms were written about the resurrection and about the ascension. Isn't that great? It's like, man, God really had a plan. A thousand years, even before that. But from David's point of view, a thousand years before Christ, this plan is already being worked out, and bam, here we are. And, we're on, and, and Peter's saying this happened 50 days ago, and now a part of this is the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit, which is the promise of God to fill empty vessels like us, to remind us the Holy Spirit that, that God himself, there's no more barrier between us, and to empower us for love and good deeds and uh, to preaching the gospel. So we killed him, but God used that sin to be the means by which he would save us from sin. Amazing. All right, so now to bring the Spirit back into this, um, this is another question here. <clears throat> How is this passage revealing to us the Spirit's job? So when someone asks you, like, what is the Holy Spirit's role in, in like, theological history, biblical history, like, what do you say? Like, what should Christians say to that? What's the Holy Spirit's job? And, and this passage is, uh, shows us really through and through almost in every word because of the context here, but we'll go back to Jesus' words in John 14 here um, in just a second, but we're getting a glimpse into the Spirit's job in Acts 2, and really the answer to this question from Acts 2's perspective is the Spirit is helping Peter to preach the gospel, and specifically about the gospel. And the Spirit is helping Peter to remind us of the gospel's significance for our lives. All right, so it might be kind of stating the obvious here, but uh, it's actually not. Like the Spirit's job is like Peter's not doing this on his own. He's saying, well, the Spirit is going to do something besides that later. He's saying, no, the Spirit actually through me now is, a, is helping you to understand what the gospel is, but also how it matters for your life. In other words, the Spirit doesn't just help us live differently. This is a commonly misunderstood aspect of the Spirit's job. That's a part of it. But the Spirit's job is not just to help us to be good or to live differently, but rather to point us to Jesus. Jesus' words themselves. In John 14, 26, before his death, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Isn't that awesome? The Spirit's job is to help. Jesus is saying, I'm saying these things to you now. You will forget all of them. The Spirit's coming. He will remind you of all of them. You're forgetful. I love you. The Spirit will point you back to me. The Spirit's job is to sort of serve Christ in the sense that he's, he wants to make him famous in our lives and in our words. He wants to help us forgetful beings remember what he said and what he did primarily on the cross and through the cross and the empty tomb. So in other words, now I want you to think about this personally if you're a Christian in the room now. God is not just the one who dies for your sins, but he's also the one who sends the Spirit to make you understand why he died and to remind you of that when you forget. Isn't that like this crazy, active view of God in our lives that are so easy to forget? Like every single day, this is what he's doing. It's kind of like a, a parent who buys a gift for her toddler, but she, she chases him and then turns his body towards the present when he's walking away and not understanding what Christmas is all about yet. And the parent's like, oh, come back and open the present and 
this was going to be great, and grab the corner where it's loose there and open it up and tear it, and then, oh yeah, good job, let me cut that ribbon because you can't get that off yet, and then open it up, and then the toddler's like, what? You know, and the parent's like, look at this, look at how much I love you. And then they open it up, and it's a book, and she has it, uh, or the kid has, has it turned around the wrong way, and the parent's like, oh, you've got it upside down. And we turn around, and let me read this book to you, it's so good. I mean, this is kind of what God is like. He's not just dying, he's bringing you to the cross saying, stare, look, don't look anywhere else, this is it. Look at me here, this is the best thing you'll ever receive. Don't get bored, don't forget. He causes you to do it. He, he like comes into our life and makes the gospel matter. He doesn't just like die, he makes it sweet. He's patient with us in that. Isn't that just the best thing you've ever heard? What if, actually, what about this? What if that wasn't true? What if he just threw the present way out there in the forest somewhere and said, just go find it? Not as good, right? Definitely not as good. It shouldn't be as good. If you think it's as good, it's not. Reject that theology. It's not as happy, not as joyful, not as God-glorifying. It de-glorifies God. It makes him less glorious, actually. It de-glorifies him. It takes his fame away. He's not as loving in that instance. This is how active God is in your lives, you guys. Do you believe it? Have you forgotten it? Have you ever heard of it before? This is how active he is. The Holy Spirit, right now, is actively bringing to remembrance what Jesus said 2,000 years ago and what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. That's the Spirit's job, to focus you on the gospel. Not just this vague notion of making you do a few good things sometimes. All right, and then, the third thing is, he invites people to respond. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, so as, as you might expect, people are hearing this, and they're, they are cut to the heart, which is an inter interesting phrase, but it just means that this message is confronting them. Because we can't just look away from an empty tomb. You can't just look away from that. I mean, you can, but you can't. And so they're cut to the heart, and they ask what they should do in response. And, and Peter says, essentially, this is like the ending of any good sermon ever. You know, this is, if, if this isn't part of like the ending or part of the meats, it's not really a Christian sermon. But Peter says, turn from what you used to worship, primarily yourselves. Turn from worshiping yourselves, primarily, but other, thing, other things as well. Repent. Be baptized in water, demonstrating your association with Jesus' death, burial in water, and resurrection up out of the water, and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's really all he says, right? It's a lot there, of course, but 
tons of grace. More particularly, he says, save yourselves by realizing you can't save yourselves. Save yourselves by realizing that you can't save yourselves. The only thing that saves you is calling upon the name of the Lord. When we call on someone to save us, we're not saving ourselves, right? And so the save yourselves just means save yourselves by calling upon the one who can save you because you can't. So save yourselves by realizing you can't save yourselves, that all we can do is choose to receive the gift purchased for us at Calvary, end the exile that's between you and God, you far-off ones, by hearing his call, and then calling upon the name of the Lord from Joel 2. And, th- and that is, um, I just want to put that up here again. Acts 2.21, this is from Joel 2. And it, and it came to pass, shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that just the best thing in the world? I mean, that never gets old. Like we have that song here that talks about Jesus' name, right? Being the, the only name that doesn't get old. But this is like, man, this is like it. This is never get old. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone. And, and just make sure when you hear that, you're putting your, yourself in there. You're, you're a part of the everyone. Otherwise, it's kind of like, cobwebby theology maybe you know maybe kind of cool but that this means us right this means everyone actually it means a lot of people it means terrible people are saved who will call upon him it means people who are feeling weighted by their sin and like there's absolutely no way out whatsoever if they call upon the lord they will be saved it means pornographers adulterers fornicators self-worshippers Abusers, murderers, racists, and terrorists, if they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That's either really good news to you or super offensive or a little bit of both. I don't know. But that's what the gospel is. The worst of people on their deathbed who are way, way worse than you uh, if they call upon the name of the Lord genuinely from their heart and are broken over their sin, they are saved. This also means victims as well, those who have shame. It means people who vote differently from you. It means those who have different minor theological beliefs than you. They are saved as well when they call upon the name of the Lord. This means doubters, those who fear, those who don't fully understand everything about the Bible. When they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved as well. This means those who by all outward appearances are about the last people in the world you'd expect to become Christian, even us, are saved when we call upon the name of the Lord. Even me, right? So don't leave here without that little thought in your mind. When you see the even, the, the servants, who are male, the male and female servants, even, even them, and the everyone here, have an even me thought in your heart. Otherwise, I think we miss this. Yeah, it is objective to us. It's out there. We can appreciate looking at a swath of people and seeing that principle play out for sure. But it needs to be a mirror. Even you, even me, even us. Amazing. And the reason everyone is said here, the, again, the only reason to go back to the partiality idea, the only reason it's said, it's possible to be said, is because it's by grace we're saved. In Christ, there are no immoral or moral people anymore. Just like in Galatians 3.28, it says, in Christ there are no male or female, there are no slave or free, there are no Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction between people. There's no really good people, really bad people, if they're both in Christ. Isn't that freeing or offensive or both? There's just saved or unsaved. 
There's another place here we, we see this principle play out symbolically, um, and that is in the, the, uh, the principle of 3,000 people being saved. So how many respond that first day, 3,000? Uh, here's a question for, for you all. Why is that significant? Or does it seem oddly, oddly specific? I mean, maybe Luke's just rounding, right? But why not 3,001? It's actually not biblically insignificant. Uh, and I'll walk through this really quick with you. This is a whole sermon, but a few things on this number and what I think is going on here. So the first stop is back in the book of Exodus. Earlier in the story, when God makes the first covenant with Israel, the first testament, he gives them laws to keep on Mount Sinai, to remain in covenant relate through Moses, to remain in covenant relationship with him. If you do this, you will live, he says over and over again. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in the land and stay close to me. So he gives them laws to keep to remain in that relationship, but they immediately rebel. In fact, before Moses is even down the mountain, they rebel, break God's laws, and worship something, a golden calf fashioned by their own hands, which is a picture of, of works, or worshiping what you have made, what you have done. That's another thing, though, but that's what's going on there. And then God instructs these Levites, these, this tribe of Israel who are priests, who represent the law, to kill those who rebel. It's this really kind of weird, dark, super dark story. But God says to Levites, strap swords on your sides, go into the camp, and slay all those people who are worshiping this calf. Then it says in Exodus 32, 28, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So the giving of the law led to the death of 3,000 people. The Levites, who represent the law, actually killed 3,000 people. But here in Acts, the complete opposite happens, right? When the gospel is proclaimed, not the law, is there any law in Peter's sermon? Not the law, but the gospel, how many people are saved? 3,000, right? Coincidence? Or is maybe God trying to tell us something in the way that this story is written? 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law and the Spirit are at odds. At odds. They represent two different testaments in the Bible. When commands are given, and I encourage you to look for this theme when you read the Old Testament. A lot of you are presently. Look for whenever God commands things, disobedience almost immediately ensues. Exodus 32 is one of, one of the instances where God is giving commands. He's not even done speaking. And God's like, they're already breaking them down, down the mountain. Moses, go down and, and address the issue. Or think about Adam in the very beginning. What happens when God says, don't eat from that one tree? Instantly, there's, there's rebellion. Instantly, there's sin. Think about Jonah. Whenever God says, go to Nineveh, what does he instantly do? Goes the opposite direction. When commands are given, rebellion, disobedience. It's impossible to keep his commands. This is the point of the story. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, it happens. The law brings death. The law leads us to this place. Actually, the, the, the mountain in, of Mount Sinai, this is the story where people cover their ears and say, make God stop talking. I can't handle the commands. I can't handle the burden. I can't handle the loudness, the trumpet blares. Is this a good thing? Is this a good moment we should want again in our, like, spiritualities? It shouldn't be. Don't go back to that mountain. 
the New Testament says. Don't go back to Sinai, where touching it, touching the mountain kills you, where people cover their ears saying, I can't, I can't bear this command anymore, and 3,000 people died. Instead, go to this mountain in Acts 2, which is a figurative mountain, but it's a better one. It's where the party is. It's where the blood of Jesus is, and we can touch it with our hands. We're full of the Spirit here, where we can approach God. You see how the former one didn't work and the second one did? The law and the Spirit are at odds. When commands are given, we disobey. We are unable to do good on our own. The law, though good, though, exposes us, but the Spirit, or God himself, makes dead things live. The first mountain killed and made dead. The, the second here, Calvary, or what's happening here in Acts 2, makes the dead live. It's the complete opposite, guys, complete. It, it is like a complete mirror uh, shift and a complete 180. God makes dead things live. He renews the heart. He fills empty jars with, with his spirit. So, so to wrap this up then, um, this is what this is saying. This is why the 3,000 is mentioned. Remember, think biblically. Think about the whole story when you read these things. Ask yourself the question, where else does the number 3,000 come up? You know, where else does, the, does this prophecy come up? Or what is, how is Peter handling the Old Testament here? How is Luke alluding to things? When we do that, we see this pronounced theme in, in Acts. It's, it's only those who call upon Jesus who are saved, not those who keep the law. Because it can't be kept. And this is not just true for those of you who are not Christians today. It is true for you. Uh, the good news for you is the same for Christians, but if you believe the gospel, you'll be saved like the rest of us. But this is true for you Christians in the room. This is ongoingly true every day. Do not graduate from this. There's no such thing as a Christianity that's married to law. Oil and water, through and through. The Spirit does not come to help you keep the law. That's another kind of common misunderstanding about the Spirit. The Spirit does not come to say, well, now we have the Spirit, so now we can keep the Old Testament commandments. The Bible never talks that way. The fruit of the Spirit will be worked out in your life, but that's His fruit, not yours. The Spirit's job is to point you to Jesus, not the law. See what this is saying here? What does Jesus say in John 14? What's the job of the Spirit? To point you back to Sinai? Or to point you to Calvary, where Jesus died? Clearly through and through the latter. The Spirit's job is never, ever linked with pointing you back to Sinai, back to Moses, back to the commandments. Never. So why do we do it? The message here is to free us from that way of thinking. Come away from that. Leave it behind. Like Hebrews 8.13 says, allow it to become obsolete. That word is used in the Bible, obsolete, to refer to the Old Covenant. Let it become obsolete and give way to Christ who comes to fulfill it. It continues its ministry pointing to him. But in terms of like being a covenant over us, it's only the Spirit now. It's only new life. It's only the resurrection. It's only Jesus being a new kind of priest and king. Not like the Levites, but like a Judahite. Like, like David. All right, so this last command here then. When God's spirit, or, or uh, question, when God's spirit is poured out on you, what else do you think there is to do? It's by grace you guys are saved, not by works. Think about this question though, seriously. If God's spirit's truly poured out on you in full, what else do you think there is to do to like fix your relationship with him or 
um, to send to him? There's nothing. The, the point to the Spirit being poured out is not utilitarian, primarily. It is just, it's a grace, it's a gospel. It's that God, there's no more distance anymore between you and him. But one, I, sh- I shouldn't assume that the first part, though, was believed. Christian or not in the room, do you believe the Spirit is poured out on you if you believe the gospel? If you don't, then do. And then after that, think, well, what else is there to do? And the, the answer is a huge nothing. There's things to do, obviously, with our lives, but in terms of like what it means to be saved, what it means to have joy every day, absolutely nothing. We already have the Spirit, and that's like, that is the stamp that guarantees our inheritance, Ephesians 1.13 says. That, that is the thing that says, boom, my child, my daughter, my son, saved forever, can never lose it. So like, like, any, like, again, I said this before about this, but this is how he ends his sermon. This should be the ending to basically every sermon. That's our conviction here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read from him, but basically, this is for us, though, for all of us in the room. Believe, repent, be baptized, love others in light of this great love from heaven that has come down to be judged in darkness in our place, and then go tell someone about it this week. Witness. Share it with your words. Other, to other Christians, to build them up, towards other, to build them up, and to people who are not yet saved. So they can hear for the first time, like people are here in this context, that the tomb actually is empty, which changes literally everything, and that does have bearing on our life. If we call upon the name of the one who slayed death for us, we will be saved. That's true for you guys. That's true. God wants, God wants you to hear that. He wants you to know how free that is today. Whether you've already done it or not, call upon him. Call upon him afresh i.e., not by what you have to give, not by your generosity or love, because it's not you who've loved God, but it's God who's loved you by sending his one and only son to die in your place, First John 4 says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Acts 2. And God, all you've done in history up to this point, uh, Father, help us uh, to take communion now with thanksgiving and just to remember that all who call upon you and in ingest or nourish ourselves on the body and blood of Jesus are are saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Guys